The easiest way I can describe it is if you find that you can go, you know, three or four or five days in a row with very little sleep, like zero to two hours sleep, you're probably in a manic episode. If you find that you're making incredibly reckless, dangerous decisions over days and weeks, that probably means you're in a manic episode. And on the depressive side, just the the feeling of hopelessness that lasts for days or weeks. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Paul English. Paul is best known for co-founding Kayak, which was my go-to travel site in the 2000s. That was back when booking a flight involved calling airlines and bargaining for deals with real-life travel agents. It was a huge hassle, and Paul's company was the market leader in simplifying consumer travel services. In 2013, Paul sold Kayak for $1.8 billion to travel giant Priceline, and he has gone on to focus on his other passion, philanthropy. He has opened schools in underprivileged areas in Haiti and has raised millions of dollars toward racial justice in Boston. And now, part of that philanthropy has been about finding solutions for people with bipolar disorder, something that Paul has dealt with his entire life. Also, before we get into the interview, I just want to give you a heads up. This conversation does mention suicide. We are getting into vulnerable conversations with this show to destigmatize the way that we talk about these topics, but it's also important for you to think about your own headspace when listening to these incredible stories. So with that in mind, let's get into our conversation with Paul. So a lot of people know of your business success, but I would say fewer people know the mind of Paul English. And so if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to tell me about where your mental health journey started. What point in time in your life was it where you knew that this was going to be a really important aspect that you had to put focus on? Yes, I was never labeled until I was 25 years old. But as I look back to my childhood, I would say definitely very strong ADHD. I had a lot of trouble sitting still in a classroom. I actually find it a little inhuman that we stick 30 kids and expect them to sit down for eight hours in front of a teacher. And for some kids, it's just physically not possible. So just school is very difficult for me. I have kind of a creative mind and I jump from thing to thing. The bipolar diagnosis happened in my late 20s, maybe 25 or late 20s. I, I just remembered something you said, and I'm really fascinated by how you managed it. You said, especially in the early days of your diagnosis, how you experienced grandiosity, where you kind of got annoyed when people didn't understand your ideas or that people were moving slower. You you sometimes found it difficult to manage others or relate to others. How did you deal with that before you had the, the tools that you have now? How did you manage basically not being able to work super well with people? So... I did not deal with it well early in my career when I was going through these manic episodes of grandiosity. I was very, very irritable, and I thought people were slow, and I didn't like it when they didn't get my ideas. And I was probably pretty brusque with people. The one career advice I wish people had given to me when I was 25 
which I think is good advice, not just for people with a mood disorder, but a good advice to everyone is, Maya Angelou has a quote which says, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. So lead with kindness. And when someone irritates you, don't snap at them and don't treat them rudely. Just always act with kindness. And I have learned that lesson over the years and it served me really well. And it allows me to maintain relationships for decades. Was there a moment in time where you where you realized that you needed to do something about it? Was there a point in time where the conditions around you, either in, in business or life, pushed you to your physical limits? I mean, what got you to really start caring for yourself in the right way? So in my 20s, I had two things. One, I had some severe depression and panic attacks and anxiety on the one hand. I couldn't even lie in bed at night. I find this hard to explain, but I had to lie on the floor and I would just look at the windowsill in my bedroom and wait for the sun to come up. And then on the flip side, I was a workaholic. I've been a workaholic my whole life. I've had jobs since I was 10 years old. And I worked really hard at my jobs through middle school and high school. And I worked full time and went to college at night. So I was a bit of a workaholic. But on the manic side, I found that I was working crazy hours and thinking about work all the time. And my mind was racing so much that I started disconnecting from people. And, you know, I look back now at those episodes and I say I was probably just filled with extreme grandiosity where I thought all my ideas were like world changing. And I found people to be irritating that I felt people talked too slow and they didn't get some of the ideas that I was saying. And I had been married at age 25 and this cycling between bad depression and then this super manic energy where I wouldn't sleep for days, it was hurtful to my relationship as well. And I think that's what led me to go see a doctor to say, you know, is there something wrong with me? And that's when I first got the diagnosis of bipolar. And that's what began my journey, which again, took me 15 years till I figured out how to manage it. Yeah, I can imagine there was just like so much built up pressure from from years of figuring out what this was on your own or really not knowing until you found professional help. I want to talk about the impact on your career in a second, but I think everyone obviously has heard of bipolar disorder, but a lot of people actually don't know what that means or they have associations that aren't necessarily correct. Yeah, sure. And people use the term very casually. Yeah. Um, I'm not offended when people use the word casually, but sometimes people say, oh my God, that person's so bipolar, or they'll say, oh my God, I feel bipolar. When everyone has mood cycles, like you have cycles of mood where sometimes you're kind of depressed, that doesn't make you quote unquote bipolar by the DSM manual. The easiest way I can describe it is if you find that you can go, you know, three or four or five days in a row with very little sleep, like zero to two hours sleep, you're probably in a manic episode. If you find that you're making incredibly reckless, dangerous decisions over days and weeks, that probably means you're in a manic episode. And on the depressive side, it's just the the feeling of hopelessness that lasts for days or weeks. Not like you're having a bad day at work, you know, your boss yells at you or whatever, but it's more like you can't get out of bed for days or weeks. And so if you have both the can't get out of bed for days or weeks 
and then sometimes can't sleep for days, you should get checked up. These swings that Paul is describing is a heightened and specific experience to people dealing with bipolar disorder. And sometimes these emotional benders can last weeks or even months. So I am fascinated and amazed that Paul was able to build Kayak while dealing with a mental condition that itself can feel like a full-time job. And that's why for Paul, his bipolar disorder acted as a major hindrance when building Kayak. Navigating this challenge was not easy and breakthroughs came later in his life through honest conversations, trust, and real maturity. I was 40 years old when we started Kayak, so I was a lot older than most entrepreneurs. I still would have manic episodes over the years. In fact, I probably still have them to some degree. And there's probably a little bit of it that's probably helpful to my career, and there's probably pieces of Kayak that were designed in a manic state or different ideas of different features on Kayak. But it's definitely not something to celebrate. Like, I don't think people should choose to be bipolar. <laughs> or um, if you have real issues on the depressive side or on the manic side, you need to get help. And one of the secrets for me is a lot of times when people have a successful career early on, like I think I was in my 20s, I was a VP, had a couple hundred engineers reporting to me. I made my first million dollars in my 20s. And I had massive impulsive syndrome. Like, do I deserve this? Someone's going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. You and me both. And yeah, but I figured out a solution to imposter syndrome, which is just be open, be vulnerable, and be open about your insecurities. Not to like make your friends all become your therapists, because you don't want to be dumping on people constantly. But in a work environment, you should find a couple trusted people and tell them, about your struggles. I've often said when I lecture on entrepreneurship at different universities, I've often said that people will follow confidence, but they'll be loyal to vulnerability. And when you're vulnerable about your mental health issues and not necessarily posting it on social media for everyone to look at, but with a couple of people, it relieves you of the stress of feeling alone. So I had colleagues early in my career who I confided in them what was going on with me and they really helped me manage things. And I would check in with them to say, how do you think I'm doing you know, this week? And their advice would tell me when to get back into therapy or get a med check or whatever. So I think confiding in people, finding friends or family and trusting them, find people who have your goodwill at heart and then trust them to help you manage your condition. Because I've been pretty open the last several years about my diagnosis, I have families reach out to me Every now and then they say, will you meet with our son or our daughter or whatever who is struggling with this? And over the last several years, I have been informally mentoring five young men, either in college or just out of college, who have bipolar illness. My biggest advice to them is don't keep this a secret. Secrets are dangerous. Find people you can trust and confide in them and then have them keep you accountable to make sure that you're getting good medical care, you're finding a psychiatrist, a good psychiatrist. If you don't like a psychiatrist, find another one and another one and another one to find the one that works for you. There's a lot of resources online and you can join online support groups. There's a group that I just met and started working with called the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. It seems pretty amazing. 
So I think people should Google them, go look at their website, but find someone to confide in that you can trust who can help you navigate it for you. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about the resources Paul just mentioned, we've linked to them in the show notes for this episode. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear about the ways in which Paul's bipolar disorder can sometimes be an asset to him in business, as well as what he does today to take care of his mental health. You know, we've talked about some of the challenges and the, the pain that's come with bipolar disorder. Obviously, you, you had said like you would never wish to have bipolar disorder, but it is something that you have that you have to live with. Talk for a second whether it was later in your career with Kayak or earlier in your career with the other um, businesses you were involved in. How did the way your mind worked because of your diagnosis and because of your disorder act as an asset in a professional setting? If you work in a creative industry, I think the manic episodes help as long as not too out there. You know, there's mania and there's hypomania. Hypomania is like sort of halfway. And hypomanic episodes can feel pretty on the edge of out of control. Like when I'm in a hypomanic episode, <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but like I'll be at my car at a red light and like I notice the grass next to me and I can see it moving if there's a breeze. I notice the color of sunlight, that like a building that I drive by every day looks different now than it did yesterday, because it's a different time of day. Like I become hyper, hyper aware of my environment and I just have huge energy. And on those days, I think I'm prolific, that I can crank out a lot of designs and product specifications. And my mind both can jump rapidly from idea to idea, that one idea can stimulate another one. But it also allows me when I get these energy bursts that I can go for a very long period without eating or getting distracted. I can just work on something. And so to that extent, having a little bit of the manic or hypermanic energy can be helpful. But in all cases, I think it works best when the colleagues you're working with, they know your situation and they know how to manage you. There was this thing at Kayak that I didn't learn until years later, and I felt really bad about this when I found out that people said, if Paul asks you to do something, you don't necessarily have to do it until he asks you it again. And the reason they said this is I would come to the office every morning with like 20 new ideas. <laughs> and they basically said, all right, this is like a fire hose. It's just going to be new stuff coming constantly. If he mentions the same thing a week later, this is probably like a real idea as opposed to idea of the day. So people know that when you have a mood disorder, that times you're going to be manic with a million things coming from you and have people that can balance that. And I had that at Kayak. I had amazing collaborators that were extremely complementary skill set and complementary mood to me. Well, I feel like that's also going back to what you were saying about the importance of being vulnerable and sharing, right? It's not just helpful to you in managing your own psyche, but it also allows your colleagues to kind of understand the rules of engagement, right? Like understand the way in which you work and be able to na navigate that in an informed way. Yeah. So this feeling of enhanced creativity that Paul is describing 
is actually something that I have experienced in my own mental health journey. Through my life dealing with OCD, I've gone through fits and spurts of extreme positive and productive attention to detail, as well as creative energy and obsession that I worry I would not have without my disorder. And for me, there is a fear of losing that essence of what makes me me and makes me entrepreneurial if I take medication for my OCD. As it happens, Paul felt the same exact way. Yeah, I did have that fear that meds would cut down on my creativity and would cut down on my energy. At one time in my mid-20s, the first drug I was put on was lithium, which works really well for a lot of people. I ended up going off it because one day, one of the people I trusted most in my company came up to me and said, how are you doing? Are you like depressed? And I said, no, I feel pretty good. Why? He said, you just seem low energy. And I immediately went off the med because I'm like, I can't be on a med that takes away my energy. But the reason I'm pro-medication is it's such a slippery slope that like you think you enjoy the creativity and the energy, but you just go 10 to 20% more manic and it can get dangerous. You just make stupid decisions. It can be really reckless. So in college, I know I could code for 24 hours straight. One time I was working in the server room, the machine room at UMass Boston, which is this concrete room with no windows. So there's no sunlight. You had no idea what time of day it was. And I had been coding for a long time, working on some big project I was supposed to do, maybe in my compiler's class for the semester. And I didn't work on it till like last minute the night before it was due. And there was an earthquake, which is unusual in Boston. But I noticed the screen shaking. I go, what is this? And I turned and it looked like the walls were, these concrete walls were moving. And then I looked at the clock on my computer and it said 10 o'clock. And I said to myself, is it 10 p.m. or 10 a.m.? And I wasn't sure because I've been coding for like 24 hours straight. So I used to have these energy bursts, which let me focus and work for really, really long hours. But I don't think I want to go back to that. And so I have a phenomenal psychiatrist in Boston, and he used to joke that he would say, my job is to keep you off the front page of the Boston Globe for doing something stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Quite the advice from the psychiatrist. I think the depression has been well managed. I've not had a real depressive episode in probably a dozen years. And the manic side is, I think, well managed. My girlfriend is pretty acutely aware to my mood disorder and she kind of checks in on me. Not that it'll never become a problem for me in general, but I think I know how to manage it now. For Paul, these non-medical practices to manage and better his mental wellness aren't large-scale changes to his day-to-day. They are approachable shifts in health and mentality that separate his emotions from his actions. The thing about meditation and mindfulness, which again is separate but related, is it removes the edge. There's a Buddhist saying, respond, don't react. What it means is, if something happens, don't have that impulse, quick, immediate response to anger or whatever. You can respond and process and then react. For example, if someone cuts me off in traffic, it just doesn't phase me anymore. And I have this corollary that I made up about meditation that was inspired by him. And most people, when they meditate for the first time and they take a class or they read a book, they say they sit down in a chair, they try to focus on their breath. And after 10 minutes, they say, 
damn, I've been thinking about work for the last 10 minutes. This meditation thing is really hard. I can't focus. This is terrible. I hate this. I'm no good at this. I can't do this. What you instead should do, and it took me years to learn this, is when you're distracted, you're trying to meditate, and you realize you've just been spending 10 minutes worried about your fight you had with your mother, you're supposed to celebrate that you just became awake, and you just realized your thoughts. And the moment when you realize the distraction, and then you bring it back to your breath, that's like doing 10 push-ups. And so I have this corollary that if during meditation, you can bring it back to your breath 10 times, and a hundred times, and a thousand times, and ten thousand times. The more you exercise that bringing back muscle, the more in life you'll just have calmness and peace. And when someone cuts you off in traffic, you won't have that immediate impulse to like get angry. Because with meditation practice, you'll learn how to go from distraction to calmness, and you'll do it hundreds and thousands of times. So it becomes natural. And that's been really helpful to me. So I would say Buddhism has helped me a lot, meditation and mindfulness, and then the meds and the therapy and the friends. One final question for you is, you, you alluded to this earlier when I mentioned that you've started six companies and you had mentioned four nonprofits. And I believe one of the, the organizations that you're starting is Bipolar Boston um, to help other people who uh, struggle with bipolar disorder as well. Can you talk a little bit about why you just start, decided to start the organization and what your ambitions are with it? Yeah, Alex, I mentioned earlier that I had been informally mentoring five or six young men in their 20s who had been suffering with bipolar illness. And for the most part, these men, these young men are all doing pretty well. One of them has been a good friend of mine for about five years now, and he ended up killing himself in November. And it's still hard for me to realize that this guy is gone. And we had talked about creating a company together in Kenya. He had moved to Kenya, and I have a lot of people I know in Kenya, and so we were networking and gonna do something together there. And it's really with his death that I said, okay, I spend at least eight hours a week doing nonprofit work, and I'm running three nonprofits that I started in the last 10 years, and they all have scaled. I have a school system in Haiti with 40 schools and 10,000 students. The second one is I do a racial justice project in Boston called King Boston that we've raised $20 million that we're using to work on racial equity issues in the city. And the third one is I do a lot of work with homeless populations in Boston and do an annual event called the Winter Walk that has raised millions of dollars and has thousands of walkers every year. So those three have done well. But with my friend Jake's death, I realized, okay, nonprofit work has clearly always been important to me, but I've never done anything personal. So it really was his death that made me say, I should do something about this bipolar thing because I have my own journey that you and I have just talked about. And um, maybe by sharing my journey and by finding other people that have quote unquote made it, whatever that means to share their journey, maybe it gives hope to people in their 20s to say, this is something that's manageable. Paul's story about his mentee and friend is a truly heartbreaking reality of bipolar disorder. On this episode, we've sort of talked about the quote unquote pros of having a creative, energetic brain that comes with the manic episodes of bipolar. But in no way is it worth putting up with those episodes because the negatives and the crashes of energy as he's described can lead to something as tragic as suicide. In honor of his friend, 
Paul put together a set of resources on bipolar.boston.org to address the issue in his city. Bipolarboston.org is to bring people together in Boston and to create peer groups so that you're not alone and you can meet other people that have bipolar illness and you can sort of share tips from each other. And we're gonna provide resources about local hospitals, about counseling centers at different universities, about other resources, and then doing a video series where I wanna find well-known people to talk about their journey and hopefully have those little vignettes inspire other people to say, there's a way to manage this illness. Yeah, I resonate with so much of that. And so I am sure people are gonna find a ton of value out of what you're creating. And that's the whole point of the show is bringing people who have quote unquote made it eye level with everyone to be open and vulnerable about their mental health journey. And so I applaud you for for being open and vulnerable um, about your whole experience. I really do think it's moving a lot of people. Well, thanks, Alex. For Paul, the first step in treating his bipolar disorder was understanding how his manic episodes were affecting the people around him. Paul used his community to provide a level of mental checks and balances to let him know when he needs to wind it back, rest, and sometimes use medication when prescribed. In the show notes, we're gonna link to some of the resources around addressing bipolar disorder, as well as Paul's educational foundations if you wanna check them out. And now, before we go, it's time for some reflection of my own. Hearing Paul's early struggles when communicating with coworkers because of his bipolar disorder was really relatable, even to those who don't suffer from the disorder. I loved Maya Angelou's quote that he shouted out, people will forget what you did, they will forget what you said, but they won't forget how you made them feel. I feel like that it is so true and ties back into my Founders Journal podcast episode about radical candor. Radical candor is a phrase that I know and love, and it's built off of Kim Scott's book of the same name. The book is all about inter-office communication and how to navigate difficult conversations that inevitably Paul had in his career that need to happen to lead to productive results. Kim explains radical candor by breaking down different management styles into four quadrants. Let's walk through them quickly. The top left quadrant is what we call ruinous empathy. This is reserved for managers that care really deeply about their people, but do not challenge them directly. I personally think that most managers fall in this quadrant. I definitely do. This is the quadrant where we think, because we're empathetic, we can't say anything but positive things to people that report to us. Now, let's move down to the next quadrant. This quadrant is reserved for people who don't care personally about their people and they don't challenge directly. This is the worst possible place to be. It's not common, but it leads to the bosses that you never forget. This quadrant is referred to as manipulative insincerity. Next is bottom right. This quadrant is the professional that challenges directly but does not care personally. This is known as obnoxious aggression or what I like to call the raging asshole. We have all worked with this type of person. Now, last but not least is the top right quadrant. That is the one we've been waiting for. This is the person who cares personally, 
So they're high on personal care and they challenge directly. This is what Kim Scott refers to as radical candor and what every professional should strive to embody. Think about if someone knew that their boss actually gave a shit about them, how much more likely they would be to receive constructive guidance. In Kim's book and in my episode, we break down the strategies to give you the keys to radical candor and why achieving it is so important and is actually your moral obligation as a manager or an employee to make other professionals the best versions of themselves. Especially during the age of remote work and while working on one's own mental health, using radical candor can be anxiety-inducing in its own right. In those moments, know that your feelings are not isolated and others share them. I share them. Talk to others and even give us an email at imposters at morningbrew.com. We want to hear from you. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our show is produced by Michaela Heck and Vishnu Vallabhaneni. Our executive producer is Brian Henry. And our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Alan Haberchak is the director of audio at Morning Brew. And Sarah Singer is our VP of multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.